our mission. Today is Thursday, March 14th, 2013. This is podcast number 281, and my name is Ben Stone. Now, uh, as usual, I'm going to give a few announcements here. Pork Fest 10 is coming up, and you probably know that, and you probably know about it. And um, I am in negotiations, not really negotiations, I'm talking with the, okay, let's put it this way. The Pork Fest people have contacted me, and uh, we're looking at, right now, we're looking at probably I'll be talking, I'll have two different talks. One will probably be on central planning versus spontaneous order, and the other talk will probably be on uh, discovering, and defe- discovering and defeating statist thinking. And they're also considering having me on perhaps one or more of the panel discussions that they have. So we'll have to see how that works out. Plus, uh, I'll be there for the different dinners that they have as well. So, so that's good news. Um, that's good news that uh, you know that they uh, are allowing me time to speak and so forth. And and I really appreciate that too. Uh, now, also coming up, as I've been talking about here lately, the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo is coming up, and that is Saturday, April 27th, 2013, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall. There's going to be workshops, tables, speakers, vendors, and all activities all day long, and it's very similar to like, uh, the, like the Liberty Forum, but, um, but there's no admission cost, so you don't have to buy tickets ahead of time or anything like that. Just show up and you know uh, involve yourself with all of what's going on, have a lot of fun, meet people, and once again, that's April 27th, 2013, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall. Uh, now, also, recently I was on Michael Shanklin's show. Uh, Mike runs Voluntary Virtues, the website over there, along with uh, you know uh, a lot of other people that support Mike. And, uh, and and Mike's got a lot of good stuff going on. If you haven't seen Mike Shanklin's videos on YouTube. Uh, you're really denying yourself uh, some good stuff. Mike has really, really good videos. Um, you, if you just go to YouTube and search Mike Shanklin, that's spelled S-H-A-N-K-L-I-N, then uh, you'll find him really easy. He's got a lot of material on YouTube, and uh, he's very popular. He's a really good guy. Anyway, um, so I did one of his shows uh, for Voluntary Virtues, and I'll put a link in today's show notes uh, to that so that you can... I click on it and go over there and watch the show. It was I. I kind of I kind of felt bad because I sort of I you know I've been away from the mic for a while with all of being you know being driving all throughout the South and everything for months, and I hadn't really had the opportunity to sit down with somebody and chat really you know uh, casually for a while like that. And so I think uh, I think when Mike um, got me on his show and and baited me with a couple of fun questions that I really liked to address. Uh, I kind of just took over the show and just talked for about an hour straight with hardly letting Mike get a word in edgewise. edgewise. So, I, you know, I, I kind of, sorry about that, Mike, I didn't mean to take over your show. It's just, you know, I had all that built up in me from, from so many months on the road and not really having, even though I went to the Liberty Forum and I spoke at the Liberty Forum and I talked to friends at the Liberty Forum and all kinds of stuff like that, it's still, you know, having a mic in front of you um, when you're accustomed to just taking that mic and speaking everything that's in your heart and just dumping it all out, it's it's sometimes it's really difficult to let somebody else get a, a, you know get their thoughts in. So uh, hopefully I didn't overwhelm Mike too bad. Mike's a good guy though. We've talked before several times and and I even interviewed him on uh, Bad Quaker. Uh, oh, I guess it was a little less than a year ago. So it was really nice to talk to Mike again, but. 
anyway, so again, the link will be there on uh, in today's show notes for uh, for the interview that uh, where Mike interviewed me. Okay, now before we get started today, I want to read something uh, by a guy that goes by the name of JG Vibes, and the the title of this is "The Difference Between a Leader and a Master" by JG Vibes. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because you know the other day I was talking about uh, the difference between a leader and uh, and why why leadership is is not the same. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, uh, I was talking about the statist argument that we have to have leadership. We have to have leaders. We have to have leadership, and they uh, blend this idea of uh, coercive leaders, uh, you know, forced masters, and actual leaders. Because natural leaders will always pop up in every setting where there's you know more than one person there's always going to be a tendency to have a natural leader and there's nothing wrong with that it's entirely natural there's no aggression involved but when you have someone like we have represented to us in government uh, then you don't have a leader that's not a leader that's not leadership government does not provide leadership government provides aggression and coercion they do this through force and violence and lies uh, deception of different levels and so uh, J.G. Vibes, uh, sometime back, did a really good article on this. And when he heard my podcast of the other day, where I was talking about how this argument that, that status will always throw in your face, that we have to have leadership, we have to have leadership. Well, um, he wrote a really good article. Now, I'm only going to read the first part of this. And I'll provide uh, a links in the show notes today to the whole article. And I really encourage you to go over and read the whole article. It's not very long, but, uh, but that's why I'm giving the teaser in today's show uh, uh, so, so that you'll you know, be inspired to go over, follow the links. And, uh, and, and so here's the first little bit, The Difference Between a Leader and a Master by J.G. Vibes. What's the difference between a leader and a master? These are two different terms which imply two different types of relationships that exist between human beings. The key element that separates these two types of people is the element of force. Masters will use force and intimidation on others so their commands will be obeyed, while leaders will naturally gain admiration from their peers for contributions that they have made to the community. Leaders have no interest in obedience and have no time to bark out orders. They are too busy hacking through the vines in the jungle, clearing a path for the rest of us to follow. Leaders are chosen voluntarily by people who are inspired by their acts, while masters are imposed on many different people who have no choice in the matter and would most likely prefer to be left alone if they were given the opportunity. Leaders may be exceptional in many ways, but they are still on equal ground with their peers, while masters require the upper hand and will typically have privileges that they deny to those around them. There are some who are deceived into admiring their masters, and they end up mistaking these masters for leaders, but that doesn't change the nature of the relationship between these two people. The fact that a slave may trust and admire his master does not magically turn that master into a leader. If the interactions between the two parties are involuntary and involve force, then you can be assured that you are dealing with a master-slave relationship, not a leader-learner relationship. And uh, that's from at the website Activist Post, again, JG Vibes. And I want to encourage you to get over there and uh, uh, follow the link at badquaker.com in the show notes today and read the whole article uh, it's really worth your time. It's not a very long article, but it's really worth it. Now, I did want to clarify something here because I've been taking a task on it a few times in in this in the difference between you know, and it's really just wordplay when we talk about violence and the difference between violence and aggression. Um, violence, you know, um, or or uh, even if you use the word force, uh, force, of course. When force is hmm, forced upon you, um, then then we have aggression. So what we're talking about here, whether we're talking about violence or force, as opposed to aggression, think of it like, um, you know, think of it like boxing. In boxing, 
you can have violence and you can have force, but there's no aggression. So in other words, there's the two guys boxing each other, that's very violent, but it's not aggression. And when they punch each other, force is involved, but it's not aggression. So really, we want to make sure we're talking about aggression. Aggression is the initiation of force and or violence. Um, and that's really what ag aggression is. Aggression is that initiation of it. So, of course, you can't have aggression without either force or violence or the threat thereof. The initiation of force or violence or the threat thereof is aggression. So when we talk about the zero aggression principle, we're talking about rejecting aggression. And, of course, defense is never aggression because the fact that it's defense means that aggression has already been uh, that, that the force or violence has or, or, or threat thereof has already been initiated. So, for instance, um, let's say someone comes up to you and takes a swing at you. Well, the second that you see that they're in the motion of taking the, the swing, you don't have to wait till they actually hit you. You can see what's happening. Uh, and, and the initiation of the violence has begun when they're in the process of swinging at you. And so as soon as you see a viable threat... You can take defensive action as perfectly legitimate. On the other hand, if you just see someone you think, well, that might be a violent person, that's no, that's no grounds. You, you can't say it's defense to then go and attack them. They have to be actively seeking to harm you or threatening to, and it has to be a, a realistic threat. It can't be like uh, somebody just says on the Internet, you know, oh, I hate you. I, want you, to, you know, I want you to die in a fire or whatever. Um, that's not aggression. That's just uh, that's just talk. That's just words. There has to be some kind of realistically, um, there has to be some realistic way that the person can accomplish this. So okay, um, and now here's here's something else to think of when we think about aggression. Think about uh, how a person voluntary voluntarily works for a corporation. So you have a boss employer situation. You say, well, see, that's that's where there's a leadership, but um, and, and it's voluntary because you volunteer to work at that in that corporation, work for that boss, even though the boss is a jerk. He's not really a leader. He's still he's still the leadership in that situation. Well, this is one of the flaws that I talk about with the state because all corporations are an aspect of the state. They exist because the government has made up certain rules and certain laws and they take advantage of those certain rules and certain laws and that's how the company, that's how the corporation exists. And the corporate structure itself is based on top-down management, on central planning. Uh, you know, it's based on uh, a flawed economic um, uh, framework. So, uh, so how can working for a corporation, working for a boss, how can that be, you know, uh, being aggressed upon? Or how can that be, uh, how can we explain the boss relationship as not being leadership, as being, you know, a tyrant or, or whatever, a master, so to speak? Well, it, it is in a way, because if you think about, if you, if you compare um, voluntarily working for a, com for a corporation and the boss in that corporation, if you compare that to an indentured servant, say from the 1700s or something, let's say, um, let's say because uh, because a powerful landlord or because a king or because of parliament or whatever, for whatever reason, um, you're impoverished. Your property has been taken away. Maybe a, a war has been fought in your you know near your your homeland or whatever, and you're impoverished for whatever reason, and you have no means of support whatsoever because of an oppressive, oppressive government or an oppressive landlord who uses the fist of government or whatever. And so you say, okay, well, how can I live? How can I make a living? How can I? And the only option open to you is to sell yourself into voluntary servitude, to, into, into indentured servitude. So you say, okay, so you go to some ship captain and you say, look, um, if you'll give me you know, use old time numbers and so forth from the from the 1700s. If you'll give me like, um, you know, 10 pounds uh, sterling, if you'll give me 10 pounds, then I'll be an indentured servant, and you can, oh, and and now I'll take my 10 pounds and I'll buy passage to the new world on your ship. So the ship captain says, "Great, I give you 10 pounds, and you're my indentured servant." And you'll pay me the 10 pounds to haul you to the new world, and then I can sell you there. 
And you're like, yeah, okay, I agree to this. So now you're an indentured servant and you've done this voluntarily. And so, uh, so he hauls you to the new world and you work while you're on the ship for him. You get to the new world. He sells you and makes a profit. He probably sells you for 15 pounds or maybe 12 pounds. And so he makes a profit off of you. So he's happy. He got free labor from you. He only had to pay your room and board, basically, to feed you and got you to the new world. And so he had free labor pretty much for the whole journey. And now he can sell you at a profit. So he sells you to a shoemaker. Now the shoemaker owns you, and you're an indentured servant to that, but you're there voluntarily. Well, you know, um, what are your rights and responsibilities in a situation like this? Is uh, indentured servant, is that a legitimate thing? In a, you know, like the freedom fiends always talk about libpair, a libertarian paradise. Would, it, would indentured servants exist in a libertarian paradise? Well, that's a, an argument that a lot of people have uh, kicked around a lot. You know, Murray Rothbard took a position on it. Others have taken positions contrary to Murray, Murray's position. I think I would come down to a large extent in Murray's situation where uh, I think you could have indentured servants in a libertarian paradise. Um, but here's the problem. I think in a situation like that, what we're talking about is uh, following through with contracts. You make a private contract with someone else, and you agree to that contract. But um, as circumstances change, you're not morally obliged to continue to, to stick that contract. You are obliged in the sense that if the community finds out that you're the kind of a person who breaks, who makes, and then breaks com contracts, then eventually it's going to be difficult for you to ever get any other contracts. Eventually, no one will want to make a contract with you. And then life would be very difficult for you if no one would make a contract with you. It'd be sort of like a credit rating. Um, nobody's going to loan you money if you always default on your credit, right? Well, it would be the same with, uh, in a, in a lib pair, it would be the same with, um, with following com contracts. So, uh, so Murray looks at it, Murray Rothbard looks at it and says, uh, yeah, yeah, you could be, you could, you could sell yourself into an endangered, uh, endangered, indentured servant. You could sell yourself into that, but you would be under no moral obligation because you continually own yourself. You always own yourself. And so you ought to be able to change your mind. There's nothing in natural law that would prevent a person from changing their mind. Circumstances change, your opinion changes, and you say, you know what, I don't want to be this indentured servant anymore, so I'm going to, you know, uh, break this contract. And in a libertarian paradise, that may be frowned upon in the community, and you may be shunned, or people may not want to do business with you, or they may not want to make contracts with you. But from a strictly natural rights point of view, you could both sell yourself into servitude and break that contract and step out of it. But now in the world we live in today, which is not lib pair, in our world that we live in today, we are forced by the hand of government um, to, to behave in certain manners. We're forced to use the currency that the government authorizes. We're forced to use the banking um, uh, types the the type the you know fractional reserve banking that the government has approved of we're forced to deal with companies like whether it's GE Monsanto you know you're forced to buy uh, well it's almost impossible not to buy the products and this and the services from these massive uh, corporations that are that exist at the hand of the government so uh, being that we live in this world and we're forced to use the currencies of this world, and we're limited by, you know, all the different rules and regulations not allowing us to start our own business without jumping through all these hoops and paying all these taxes. Because of that, we're forced into this situation to take, oftentimes, to take corporation jobs. We're forced to do this due to circumstances and due to the existence of the state. So even in a situation where you look around you you chew you say well you know what can i do can i starve or can i go to work for a corporation well due to all of the aggression of the whole system you're being forced to make that decision 
And so it's not entirely voluntary when you work for a corporation or you sit in a cubicle for eight hours a day, five days a week, and you sit in, you know, you commute for half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, each direction, back and forth every single day. None of that's, that's not by our choice in the true sense of the word choice. It's a situation that we're forced into because of layers and layers and layers of, of state distortion in the market. So if there was no state distorting the market, would we accept Federal Reserve dollars? Of course not. Would we eat GMO corn? Of course not. Would we, um, you know, drink water with fluoride in it? Uh, not if we knew anything about fluoride. We wouldn't. But in the world we're stuck in, a world of aggression that the state has provided here for us, we're forced to do these things, including sell ourselves into servitude to a corporation. Okay, I'll be right back. Stick with me. From June 17th through June 23rd of this year, the Free State Project will celebrate its 10th annual Porcupine Freedom Festival, Porkfest. My wife Cindy and I plan on attending, and Bad Quaker staff members Hannah and Matt are trying to raise enough money to attend, as they did last year. Considering fuel, campground fees, and Porkfest tickets, we estimate it will cost BadQuaker.com a little over $2,000 for Cindy and I to attend. For Matt and Hannah to attend, it will cost about $700 more. If you'd like to take part in sending the Bad Quaker crew to Porkfest 10, here's how you can do it. Go to BadQuaker.com. You can click on the Donate button on the right-hand side of the page. You can also give us bitcoins with our bitcoin number located right below the donate button, or you can use our Amazon button to shop at Amazon. If you'd like to support BadQuaker.com on a regular basis, you can use the link to our forum and become a supporting member for only $4 a month or just $25 a year. Thanks, folks. Okay, and I'm back, and I've, I've been uh, kind of shift gears here. I've been wanting to talk about revisionist history for a while now. And there's just, uh, seems like everything else gets in the way or other topics are, you know, current or whatever. But, um, I, you know, revisionist history has two different sides, two different ways of looking at it. And according to who, uh, who uses the phrase or if they use it in a derogatory manner or, you know, what, whatever it is that they're, uh, let's put it this way. Revisionist history can mean going back and intentionally changing history for the political motives, uh, you know, to, to fit your own political motives. Or, um, or revisionist history can be going back and looking at history to try to get a different view than what's been handed to you. Now, uh, according to who you're talking to and according to what their purposes are in, you know, in re-examining history, uh, it changes uh, you know that the the meaning of the word revisionist history changes, and so for that reason, a lot of people who might be considered revisionist historians are not really comfortable with the words revisionist historians. And I've kicked this around a little bit for a while, and I think I've come up with a little bit better phrase than revisionist history. Uh, I, I'm starting to use the phrase historical skepticism. And so I want to explain a little bit about how, um, how historical skepticism works and what that means to me. And, and I'm hoping this phrase kind of catches on because I think it's cleaner than revisionist history. Because I think to be a revisionist means you're trying to change stuff. And being a skeptic means you just don't necessarily believe what's being handed to you. You want to know the truth. And you're not just blindly accepting what somebody else says uh, without questioning their motives or without questioning their material. Uh, so I think, I, I think it's not just a matter of, um, you know, of you know, like with the word anarchist, that word has been polluted to the, to the point where a lot of good anarchists don't even want to call themselves that, and that because there's so much negative, uh, there's so many lies associated with the word. So they stop using the word anarchist or they're uncomfortable with the word anarchist. Um, but I think revisionist history, I think the word is flawed to begin with. And I, I think historical skepticism is just a much better phrase. Uh, okay, so now, how does historical skepticism works? How, how does it work? 
Well, I think of it, do you ever have you ever seen this show? I think it's Canadian, but it's called How It Works, and it's kind of a cool little TV show. They you know they pick something like how a hockey puck is made or how a violin is made or how you know um, how tennis uh, tennis rackets are made or something like this. And they actually take the cameras, and you, you don't see a lot of people. They take the cameras into the factory, and they show close-ups, and they show really fast machines that are slowed down so that you see how they work, how they operate. And they explain the process of how the product goes from, uh, how the item goes from being a raw product to a finished product. And, um, and it's really kind of a cool show. It's kind of neat to watch it at like 3 o'clock in the morning or something if you have uh, insomnia or, or whatever. So, uh, so I'm thinking, you know, I, I can imagine uh, a podcast where it says, "Today on how it works, skeptical history," and then you go through, you know, the how tos of how to actually accomplish skeptical history. Um, for me, skeptical history is looking back using every tool that's available to me, looking back at uh, events and circumstances. And trying to draw a conclusion not based on what I've been told to believe about it, but based on an understanding of how humans interact with each other, what motivates people to act in certain ways. Uh, to a large extent, I, you know, I've tried to do this even since I was a little kid. I, I've, I've always been very skeptical of, the, of, the, um, of history that was taught by schools and so forth. And a lot of that is because of my upbringing. But um, the first time that I bumped into a true, uh, uh, what I would call is a, a historical uh, skepticism, the first time I bumped into it for real was when I found uh, the uh, one in the series Conceived in Liberty. I had one, but one of the four volumes of Conceived in Liberty by, uh, uh, by Murray Rothbard. And I might mention, I'll put a link in today's show notes, to the book on Amazon, uh, Conceived in Liberty. Nowadays, they have it in one volume, and they also have, uh, at Amazon, they have it in, um, I believe they have it in Kindle form. Anyway, um, but back in the day, this is early 80s, I got a hold of one of one volume of the four-volume set, Conceived in Liberty. I think I got it at a yard sale or something like that. And uh, so I read through it, and it gave me a view of the around the time of the War of Independence in colonial America, it gave me a view of that time frame that I had never heard of before. And, you know, Rothbard gave all the references and where he got all his material, and it was all very scholarly and everything. So it's almost impossible to refute Rothbard's claims. But, uh, but that was my first real taste of somebody other than me being skeptical of the... Uh, of the you know, of the history that was being handed out. And then it was years later, I read uh, Mises, and I began to understand how important human action is and what motivates people to take action. And this helped me to break away from the stereotyping of people, and it helped me to understand that everything happens for a reason. We don't just, uh, you know, you don't just wake up one day and and the sky is clear and you say i don't know how that happened sky is clear okay this one day we was out walking like always and then just like that somebody turned off the rain and the sun come out well the sky became clear because of a whole series of events that took place you know the atmosphere was heated in particular ways there was particular amounts of moisture there was air movements that were taking place and, you know, maybe 5,000 miles away from you, the Gulf Stream is interacting with the whatever and, and pushing warm air or pushing cold air or whatever. All these things are interconnected, but you don't think of that. When you walk outside and you look at the sky, you say, oh, the sky is clear. And, and typically you don't think of it beyond that. Well, uh, um, histor historical skepticism would kind of like be, would kind of be like, uh, like the weatherman who walks out and sees a clear day, and he just he just he doesn't accept just on the surface. Oh, it's a clear day. He says, "Why is it a clear day? What was it yesterday? What will it be tomorrow?" And then he looks at all the the things, all the tools that he has to work with, 
and he makes these determinations based on all those tools and all that information and knowledge, not just blindly accepting. It's clear today, must have been clear yesterday, probably be clear tomorrow. He doesn't just accept it like that. He has to go through the steps. One of the things that kind of fired me up and got me uh, to talking about this today is the um, the History Channel has this show about the about Vikings, and it might just be called Vikings. I'm not sure. But I, I was flipping around the channels, the TV channels, the other day, and it was on. And I, th- and I knew they were going to do it, and I intentionally avoided it because, you know, I lost faith in the History Channel about 10 years ago or so when they did a special on the Norman Conquest of England. And they did this scene they, where they recreated the, the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And the way they showed this Battle of Stamford Bridge, um, they, they showed like... Um, maybe 10 or 15 Vikings running through the woods. And this was a setting that, uh, you know, they, they could have filmed it in maybe Alabama or Georgia or South Carolina or somewhere like that. It was just, it was just really super hilly country, and they were in a, uh, like a hollow with a creek running through it. And here's uh, 10 or 15 Vikings running single, uh, you know, a single uh, one after the other, um, in a single row. And they're running through the woods. And then it switches over and it shows the English. And here's uh, 15 or 20 English running through the woods in the opposite direction. And they're both, uh, not in the opposite direction, they're both running towards each other. And they, uh, you know, all of this 30, 40 guys, um, they meet on this, basically it was like a, it was almost more like a, uh, a log falling across a creek. It wasn't really like a bridge. And they all fall on each other, and they fight and fight and fight. And that's what the History Channel portrayed as the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Well, anybody who knows anything, I mean, all you have to do is Google Stamford Bridge and, and take a look at what's really there. First off, it's not in the hills. It's not a little tiny creek that they're crossing there. It's a good-sized river, and it's in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, basically in a floodplain. Um, and we're talking about huge armies clashing. This is not just 10 or 15 Vikings running through the woods. And when, when that happened on the History Channel like 10 years ago or something like that, I just stopped. That, that killed the last remnants of, of any trust I had in the History Channel. So I dropped by just to see, you know, I, I was just flipping through the channels and I saw, oh, here's this, here's this stupid Viking thing from the History Channel. I know it's going to be distorted and wrong and... And but I couldn't help myself. It's kind of like you know, okay, there's a wreck on the other side of the freeway. I'm just not going to look. I'm just going to keep driving. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. And then you look, you know, and you're like, why did I look? I didn't need to look, but you do. So I stopped, and I gave a you know, I'm watching this stupid thing on the Vikings. And there's they're on the ship. They're on the Viking ship, and they're going off into nowhere land that they supposedly have no idea where they're going. They just are trusting the navigator, and they're just going out into the new lands where no one's gone before. And uh, um, and one of the uh, members of the uh, of the Viking crew uh, kind of loses control of himself and. And he's kind of freaking out and panicking because, no, you're leading us to destruction. No one's ever gone this far before. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, we're sailing off into mysterious lands where no one has ever gone before. Oh. And, uh, And then one of the two main leaders of the Vikings just jumps up and stabs him in the throat and kills him. And I just slap my forehead. And, you know, it's one of those dope moments. This horrible, horrible, cartoonish, statist idea of Vikings, like like they're just monsters, like they're just complete barbarians, like they're, you know, knuckle-dragging, complete heathen that just, uh, uh, we'll just kill each other, just all right, yeah, just kill the guy. And everybody else just looks over and like, oh, look, he killed Bob. Okay, I'm just going to keep on doing what I was doing. Are there... Could there ever be a civilization that existed like that? This is so cartoonish. This is, and this is what the state does. And, and, and um, what I call court historians or court jesters, just like the people at the History Channel, this is the kind of nonsense they feed to the public. Like people are just sitting around, and all of a sudden somebody irritates you, and, uh, and you just jump up and stab them in the throat with a knife. And everybody else walking, walking around and looking, it's like, huh. 
Tim's dead. Oh, well, I think I want a sandwich. People are not like that. No civilization has ever functioned like that. The Vikings were not like that. And then, uh, and then they do a commercial for the upcoming episode. And in this commercial for the ups- upcoming episode, uh, and, and again, I don't know. I didn't, I'm not following the whole series. I'm not going to follow the whole series. But seeing something like that just drives me away from it altogether. But so they do a commercial for the upcoming episode. And evidently what happens, or what they portray happening in the, in the commercial is that they come back from plundering Ireland. They, they uh, Evidently in their exploita- exploration, they discovered Ireland. And so they sacked a, a monastery there. And they come back to Norway with their loot from sacking the monastery. And they come into the great hall of this powerful Viking king, and uh, and the guy says, yeah, this is what we did, and uh, you know, um, uh, Thor was with us, and we were able to do this wonderful thing. And so the Viking king says, well, you disobeyed me in going, therefore I own everything you took. And again, it's one of those hand-to-the-face moments where you just say, no, 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 no. Um, if anybody wants any kind of a realistic idea of the Vikings... Uh, probably 20 years ago or more, I bought a book called uh, A History of Vikings. A History of Vikings. by And, I, and I've never heard this person's name pronounced out loud. I've only read it. So I, I'm probably messing up the name. But it looks to me like it's either Gwyn Jones or Guywin Jones. Uh, the person is Welsh, and, and I'm not good on Welsh pronunciation, so I don't know if it's Gwyn Jones or Gwyn Jones, G-W-Y-N Jones. I'll put a link in today's show notes uh, for the book. It's, like I said, I've had the, the book was written like 1968. I have like the 1984 edition of it, and it was old when I got it. So, um, I, I like I said, I've probably had it for 20 years or longer, and I looked around on the Internet. I couldn't even find a copy of it that had the same cover as as the one that I have. So, but I but I will put a link in today's show notes to the book. And if you're really interested in Vikings at all and having any kind of a realistic idea of who the Vikings were, what their history was like, have a look at this book by uh Gwyn or Guywin Jones. Uh this uh, Jones was a a friend and um uh around the same time as like T.S. Eliot and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, Jones had a, um, a sort of a publishing thing, and both uh, T.S. Eliot and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, contributed some of their works to uh, Jones's stuff. So that's they're contemporaries of each other. You kind of get an idea of the of the circle of writers that we're talking about here. Um, and just to kind of clarify a little bit, there's a vast difference in the Nordic people and specifically in the Vikings pre-Christian to the Christian era. Uh, in the pre-Christian Vikings, of course they didn't have any respect for Christians or Christianity or Christian customs or anything like that. But they weren't just wild murderers. They didn't just go around killing people. And they did not recognize any kind of chieftain. First off, they didn't have a king. There was no king. And, and any, anybody who was a chieftain, and this directly relates to what I was reading in just a moment ago, Chieftains uh, in in Nordic culture prior to Christianity, chieftains were there uh, as leaders, and they were put in those positions out of respect and out of achievement, not out of blind loyalty, not out of fear, not out of aggression, not because they would just kill you if you didn't follow them, and they wouldn't. They had no rights to just take your stuff. The Vikings had very uh, a very specific series of laws. They didn't, they didn't just randomly take stuff from each other, randomly kill each other. They had laws. They, had, uh, they were the ones that invented peer-level juries. You know, a jury of your peers, that concept, that came from the Vikings. That's not English. That's not Roman. That's not European uh, from any European state. That was a Viking thing of being tried by your peers. And, and these are real juries we're talking about, not like today. Today, in the United States, a jury is, is forced. You're forced to go on a jury. And if you have any association or any knowledge of the person being tried, you're kicked off the jury. So it's not a jury of your peers. 
uh, take any kind of famous, um, you know, famous person who's been accused and went to a jury trial, and you think about the person on on trial, and the first thing they do is they get people who know nothing about the person, nothing about uh, the events that took place, and and that those people, and they're forced to be there, and that's the jury that the government provides. Well, that's not how the Vikings set it up, and that's not not how juries were really in Old England uh, because they inherited the jury system from the Vikings. Um, that's not how juries were then. Juries were a jury of your peers. They were people who knew you, knew your reputation, knew how you acted, and they were asked, this person is accused of X, Y, and Z. Is this the kind of a thing you would think he would do? Do you think he has the capability of doing these things? And so it was people who knew you who would who would judge you as a part of a jury. So the, and this is given to us by the Vikings. They were not just out of control monsters that would just you know fall on each other and steal each other's stuff and kill each other. And they they didn't do that. Of course, if they raided a monastery, they would have no respect for. Uh, first off, the, you know they're they're going into a culture that has something that they want, and the culture won't trade with them. And they wouldn't understand that. The Vikings were a, were a seafaring trading people. And uh, long before they, any raids took place, they weren't just wildly roaming around out in the ocean hoping they found something. They were extremely accomplished sailors. And they knew where they were going. And they knew where things were at. They had, uh, you know, for the time, they had advanced technology in seamanship and in navigation that nobody else had. And they had all that without a state. They, as a matter of fact, um, they uh, the Vikings set up trading colonies on uh, let's see one, two, three, four, four continents. Vikings set up trading colonies on four continents without a central government. Think about that for a minute. So when I get back, uh, I'll take this in a completely different direction. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Okay, now let's get back to revisionist history, or, or uh, what I was referring to as uh, historical skepticism. You know, uh, the typical, the typical history lesson is sort of what I, I think of Forrest Gump, sort of a Forrest Gump history. And what I mean by that is, uh, if if you watch the movie Forrest Gump, what you see is this really, really simplistic person who. Um, seems to wander through life without ever connecting the dots. And uh, when something happens, his explanation for it is, well, it happened for no good reason whatsoever. It just happened. Um, and, and that's the theme throughout the movie Forrest Gump. Things would happen, and he would, have, uh, he would have no idea that they were related to other things. He would not ever connect the dots between thing one and thing two. He had an immaculate... Immaculate? No, that's not the right word. He had a, um, a a clear, concise memory of everything that happened, but he had no ability to connect the dots and see why they happened or how they happened or what, what caused what. Um, he just blindly accepted everything that came to him in life. And that's kind of the history that your typical government-based school teaches. And, and it, this is even private schools that are, you know, accredited and so forth. They still have to follow the same basic pattern of teaching this Forrest Gump history where where nothing's connected and things happen for no good reason whatsoever. One day we were just walking along and everything was fine. And all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, crazy people uh, flew planes into buildings and we were at war. Just like that. For no good reason whatsoever. It just happened. One day we were walking along and everything was fine. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and we were at war. 
just like that. It happened for no good reason whatsoever. And this is the way history is taught to kids. And this is the way, in my experience, almost everybody I bump into pictures history as happening. And this is what, that's why I refer to it as Forrest Gump history, because it's, it's knowing facts about history without having any idea at all what caused these things to happen, what their connection is to each other, and how one thing led to the other, and how you can follow the pattern and see what's going to happen in the future. Sometime later, for no particular reason, somebody shot that nice young president when he was riding in his car. And a few years after that, somebody shot his little brother, too, only he was in the hotel kitchen. Must be hard being brothers. Okay, so you see from the example that um, the main point that Forrest remembers is the event, the fact that uh, he was riding in a car, it happened for no good reason whatsoever, and then for some strange reason, well, no good reason whatsoever, his brother was killed, uh, but it was in a kitchen, and it um, must be hard to be brothers. And so that's the lesson Forrest takes away from this. And given the opportunity, that's how all of history is taught by, you know, by teachers, by the schools, by television, by the History Channel. Um, this is just the way they think, this cartoonish, one-sided, um, nothing is ever related, there's no motivation, uh, random people just do bad things. And we never know why. You never know. It's just, just eat some chocolate. Don't think about it. We don't know why that happened. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. You don't know either. I don't know. And so that's what we get. We get this series of unrelated events that we're told about that we have to memorize. We have to memorize this nonsense with nothing to connect it to anything else. So, you know, we, teachers have us memorize dates and, and great men's names and, uh, you know, the titles of events. And then we're supposed to connect it all together in our minds without anything to relate it to. Uh, but they don't care. As long as you can take a test and say when the Battle of Trafalgar was fought and when the, you know, who, who, who was at uh, the, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And as long as you can answer the questions and take the test, great. Get them out of high school. Get them into a factory somewhere. Get them into a corporation sitting in a cubicle working a job like that day after. That's all they really care about. But that's not what history is. Now, the really tragic part about this is that, you know, as you take generation after generation of children and you teach them to learn history like this, you teach them that this is the narrative of history. This is how history works. This is everything that's gone before you has been like this. And then it puts a certain expectation into the child's mind, into the child's way of thinking. So that, um, so that what? For what purpose? Well, it teaches people to begin to accept life just like that. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful for the governments of the world if people just wandered around in a Forrest Gump state of mind, never questioning why things happen, never questioning the mainstream media, never questioning the storyline that's being fed to them, uh, so that, like I mentioned earlier, so that you just walk along one day and you say, oh, look at that, some bad man has flown airplanes into these buildings. Well, now, because of that, I have to let the TSA grope my, my you know, 12-year-old daughter and my grandma because of that. Okay, well, that's just too bad. And, and so it's a sheep mentality. It's a, it's a herd mentality that is taught upon us so that we don't question. So that whatever you go through in your own life, it sort of puts you into a situation where you begin, begin to force gump it. To where, you know, whatever, uh, whatever events are going on, you decide in your mind it's easier not to connect the dots. It's easier for you. It's easier for me not to think about why this happened. And then when, when we make decisions based on events that are taking place around us, we don't really want to go back and rethink those decisions and say, you know, if I'd just known about this or if I'd just known about that, then my decision would have been differently. Thinking about why things happened causes people to face the truth about their own beliefs and maybe even about their own actions, and possibly even their own atrocities. You know, nobody, no, no uh, ex-soldier, no veteran, really wants to think back and examine everything that he did during the war and say, 
did everything. It was everything that I did. It was it fully justified? It was there. Uh, did I have no choice at all? Did I do the right thing? Soldiers really don't. And, and, and you think about it, you think about the burden that they carry in this if they stop and examine. And then it's no wonder that so many soldiers uh, come back from war and then commit suicide or have destroyed lives where they have all kinds of you know, nightmares and all the other problems that go with, with uh, the different stress disorders and, and so forth. And, you know, if you think about it, well, okay, let's go back to Forrest Gump for a minute. Let's just hear what Forrest has to say about a tragedy. If I'd have known this was going to be the last time me and Bubba was going to talk, I'd have thought of something better to say. Hey, Bubba. Hey, Forrest. Forrest. What just happened? You got shot. Then, Bubba said something I won't ever forget. I want to go home. Bubba was my best good friend. And even I know that ain't something you can find just around the corner. Bubba was going to be a shrimp and boat captain, but instead he died right there by that river in Vietnam. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, so even when Bubba asks him, Forrest, why did this happen? Forrest can't even really process the question. You were shot. Now, well, of course he was shot, but he didn't ask what happened. He asked why did it happen. But very often, you know, I, and I know this from family members who suffer the memories of Vietnam, I really believe that Vietnam was harder for veterans to deal with than World War II because the lies surrounding the reason they were in Vietnam were so much thinner than the lies that got the United States into World War II. It's really easy to believe the lies of why America was involved in World War II. It's really easy. Um, it's very, you have to really try to believe the lies of why the United States was involved in uh, in Vietnam. And, you know, even when you find out about the Gulf of Tonkin and how that whole thing was based on lies and all that, all of this together, it you know, it's really hard for the uh, Vietnam veteran to look back and, and question individual incidents and justify their behavior. And this is why, in many ways, the war in Afghanistan today is a lot easier for people to accept and get behind than the war with Iraq because, you know, there's absolutely nothing connecting Iraq to 9-11. That was entirely a lie, and it's been shown that way. But we can, somehow Americans can say, yeah, but there was kind of a connection between 9-11 and, and Afghanistan. But only if you just take the statement to there and drop it, not if you think any further. If you, if you accept the Forrest Gump version of history... We were walking along one day, and all of a sudden, they just rammed right into that air, that building for no good reason whatsoever. That's all I have to say about that. If you believe that, if you accept that, then yeah, let's go kill everybody in Afghanistan. Let's go get rid of them Taliban guys. Well, what did the Taliban have to do with 9-11? Nothing. And then the mind just begins to explode when you start thinking about these, especially if you've been there and you've been involved in it and you had so much faith in the government and you've been taught your whole life to just accept the Forrest Gump history. You know, I'll take it even further. This is the reason we should doubt every war. Don't, don't just accept on face value what the government has told you. Doubt every war. Rothbard uh, said quite, you know, quite clearly that, um, that the War of Independence, the U.S. War of Independence, was the only just war in American history. And he laid out a very good argument for that. And that was um, quite inspiring for me many years ago when I read that. Rothbard, I'm just going to restate it because it can't be emphasized enough. Rothbard said that other than the War of Independence, every other war in American history was wrong. It was unjustified. It was an act of aggression on the part of the U.S. government. 
But here's the problem. Rothbard was wrong. In my opinion, Rothbard was wrong. No, I, I agree that all those wars were acts of aggression on the part of the U.S. government. But the War of Independence, sit down, now calm down, hear me out on this. The War of Independence was unjustified, and it was a war of aggression. And it was unnecessary. It was absolutely unnecessary. Think about it for a minute. The War of Independence, the American War of Independence, and I call it the War of Independence because I don't call it the Revolutionary War because it wasn't a revolution. None of the colonists were attempting to take over the government. That's what a revolution is. A revolution is when one group of people uh, tries to wrestle the government out of the hands of the other group of people. And so one government is replaced with another. That was not the purpose of that war, and it was not the result of that war. It, it, that, so there's no way you can rightfully call that war a war, a, a, a revolutionary war. It's just not accurate. It's like uh, you know calling a banana a horse. It's, it's two completely different things with no relationship to each other. So it was not a war. Uh, it was not a revolutionary war. It was a war of independence. Um, so now, uh, so what was bad about it? Well, the War of Independence created a massive amount of debt that justified bringing in a federal government and a tax system. The War of Independence wasted lives. It wasted wealth. It wasted, in, a, in another way, it wasted energy. The, the, um, the already very independent colonists, by the end of the War of Independence, they were very war weary, and they didn't want to. They didn't want any more struggle. They just wanted to compromise and get the thing over. Not compromise with the British. Once you're in it that deep, you don't compromise, you know, with your enemy. But they compromise compromised with people like Washington and with Hamilton and with Adams and uh, uh, John Adams, not the good Adams. But um, but they compromised with those people because they were too war weary to fight another war against their new oppressors, Washington and uh, Adams and all those other clowns. So the War of Independence, um, in a very real way, forced the people uh, within the colonies to accept a government that was far worse than the British government that they had kicked out. Almost immediately, they were facing things like property tax that they had never faced before. They were facing taxes on things like whiskey, they were ta facing um, a whole variety of new taxes that they never had under the English. But they were just too war-weary to do anything about it. And in many ways, the one thing that the War of Independence did for the colonists that they couldn't do under, uh, you know, under the thumb of England was uh, it freed them up to move west. So literally, if, if the government was too oppressive in Pennsylvania or in Virginia or in New York... They could just move west. They couldn't do that under the, under, the, uh, under the British because the king had outlawed it. The king had forbidden anyone to move uh, west of the Apple or well, actually west of the Alleghenies. So, um, so in that sense, it gave them the opportunity to move west and get away from the growing state, grow, the growing government uh, in the east. But that's just a temporary fix. It didn't help for the ages. That was just a, a pacifier. So what did the American uh, War of Independence really accomplish? It set up the groundwork for a more horrible government than the world has ever known. And that's the one based in Washington, D.C. today. It's the worst government the world has ever known. It's the most powerful government the world has ever known. And it's a murderous, horrible, horrible government. And so what do we do about this? Do we have another war of independence? Do we stand up to them? Do we fight them? Do we fight them? Can we fight them now? Can we fight them now? Or draw a light in the sand. No, no, no. Come on, come on. You don't fight your enemy on the battlefield that your enemy chooses, using the weapons that your enemy chooses, using the methods that your enemy chooses. The only way you, the only reason you would do that is if you want to lose. No, we have to fight this beast in a completely new way, a way that the beast doesn't understand. We have to fight the beast through market forces. We offer freedom. We show the path of liberty. And, the, and as the beast grows in power, and as 
governments become more and more tyrannical, the market for freedom becomes stronger and stronger. And as we clarify what we believe and what we teach, we will offer the market a better product than the state. And the market will choose liberty. And the state will die. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.